As we take some time in God's word this morning, let's bow in prayer to prepare our hearts. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we wish that you would speak to us, Lord. Speak clearly, speak loudly, Lord. I pray that you would speak through your word. Open our hearts that we would receive what you would say to us. Work with our wills, Lord, that we would be desirous, Lord, to obey you, to follow you. And we pray that this would be another meal, Lord, along our spiritual pathway, Lord, that feeds us and sustains us, Lord, for the week ahead, to live a life which is pleasing to you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon this morning will be going to the next of the Beatitudes, which we've been going through sequentially the last few weeks. We'll be in verse number nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, or flourishing are the peacemakers. I was a little bit surprised when Joshua read the passage, because I would have thought by now we have the Snowden Baptist version of the Beatitudes, which is flourishing, other flourishing, etc. But I hope that you have been challenged by this new central concept which has been presented to us, the whole concept of flourishing. When the Bible claims about those people who are makarios, which is that word which recurs in this passage, it's, it's casting a vision for a way of being in the world that results in human flush, flourishing. And the same author that wrote that quote, he wrote a little paper for the Institute of Faith and Works and Economics. And he went on to say, everything about who God is, his work and his kingdom are centered around the idea of flourishing. This, when I read it for the first time, it made... It blew my mind. Imagine if our frame of reference for what the gospel is, what God's work in creation is, what God's kingdom is, it's all about flourishing. So as we come to our passage this morning, a frame of reference would be to see how the flourishing, which the people who have been worked with by God's redemptive work, how this flourishing should now spill out and affect those around them as well. These Beatitudes give us, therefore, a description of what kingdom life looks like in this already and not yet time in God's eternal plan. Sure, we've been saved and Christ has finished the work and yet we still struggle with sin. God's Spirit has been given to us, but we have not received him in his fullness Jesus rules and he reigns, he does. But the world has not been placed in absolute submission to his will yet. And yet this is the world within which we are called to flourish. As Charles mentioned in the summary of his sermon, his uh, summary of the, um, the Makarios statements, flourishing is talking about something deeper than a circumstantial feeling of happiness. It's certainly not just a tick list of I've done my good, good deed for the day. It's something deeper even than having God's favor. And an item which was also highlighted as I reviewed a sermon by John Piper, it's, it's neither to be deemed as something which is optional to the Christian life. These Makarios statements are not separated for those who would have a close relationship with God and then they're saved. They can have them if they like them or they don't. It describes an ultimate state of well-being the ultimate description of human suffering, uh, human flourishing, sorry. 
and a way of being. And it doesn't look beyond this world to another world where things will be perfect and that's the place where flourishing happens. It happens in the here and now, in this world, in between the cross and Christ's return. So it answers the question, what does a God-centered life look like? And what we have in the Beatitudes is a description of the Christian life. And it's And one of the things that has come out of this study that we've had over the weeks is it's added an additional adjective that we can have for what the Christian life looks like. It's a flourishing life. So as we go through the the Makarios statements that we've had so far, hopefully you would start to see additionally a progression in the state of being. And the one which I would like to focus on today is the progression towards something which is more outwardly focused, not inwardly focused. We started with being pure, pure in, poor in spirit, acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy. I love that uh, way of describing it. John Calvin says, The poor in spirit refers to those who are under the discipline of the cross and have learned to be humble. You could arguably say this is relatively inwardly focused being poor in spirit. We continue on to people who mourn over their sins and also in the the sins that are present in the world, relatively inwardly focused and outwardly focused too. People who are humble and meek, I liked how Charles described this, not haughty or arrogant. Uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary writes, the meek are the people who quietly and obediently submit to God and who bear provocation without being inflamed. We continue on for those who long for righteousness. They long for that within their hearts, but they also have a longing for righteousness and justice to be expressed within the community, within the world. We continued on to those who, having received mercy, extend God's mercy to others. And then we talked about those who treasure purity of heart, who are unsullied, who live apart in this world. And then we come to the next one, peacemaking, those who are living in the midst of the world. Does this really describe flourishing? I have to admit that my own uh, mindset was challenged as I read these verses. And it has been a learning experience for me. Are the poor in spirit really the ones who are flourishing? Surely those people, even if it's describing people who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, surely the people that flourish are the people who have the joy of the Lord and are full of strength and live striving in the spirit. It's been hard to accept that the people who are flourishing are those who mourn over their sins. The people who are meek. Surely it's not the meek who are flourishing. Surely it's the forward who are flourishing, the you know, the people with confidence, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart and peacemakers. However, for those of us who have been saved, can you imagine what a society would look like, even in the midst of a sinful world, those which, a society which is influenced under God's kingly dominion by the things that are valued and rewarded in this list of people who are flourishing, people who are possessors of the kingdom of heaven where people are comforted 
where they will eventually inherit the earth, where people are satisfied, where mercy is shown, and where people treasure seeing the face of God. Imagine a society like that. And yet, if we talk to people in this world, they would disregard these rewards as being no recompense at all, and they would laugh at your folly. The meek will inherit the earth. The meek and the merciful, they will just surely be taken advantage of. Those, what kind of rewards are hunger and thirsting after righteousness? Seeing God? Yet for those of us who are being saved in this already and not yet world, these things are in, indeed valuable and comforting. So as we read our passage and as we look at it for, uh, for some time at this issue of peacemaking, I pray that God would recalibrate us, that he would encourage us in our flourishing, that he would remind us once again what a flourishing life is. He would ultimately remind us again what is the Christian life, that we would be spurred on to more obedience and that we would strive towards this end and pray that God would work out this characteristic of peacemaking in our hearts. And for those of you who have tried peacemaking in the past and maybe have hit a wall and it doesn't look like it's a flourishing life, I pray that as we study this passage, this, uh, this, these words of Jesus, that you would be encouraged in the midst of your struggle. So as we come to our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, flourishing are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Here we come to one of the most actively, outwardly focused of the flourishing statements. It reveals God's desire that the flourishing should spill over and benefit those who are in the proximity of God's kingly dominion. As those who are saved... We have God's kingly dominion being expressed in our lives. And God wishes that those benefits spill out and are contagious and hit and touch the people on the boundary of that kingdom. What does peacemaking look like? When I typed in the word peacemaking to uh, Google, it was probably affected by my previous searches. And the thing that came out was the Convair B-36 Strategic nuclear bomber. <laughs> I work in aerospace, so uh, you can imagine the type of things I've been searching for. But the problem is, is that for the last 50 years or so, our whole idea of peacemaking has been influenced by the idea of peacekeeping. What do we see? We see basically peace being imposed on areas by Governments and people and armies which come with weapons and they, sub, uh, they make people have peace somehow. Peace established by strength of arms. What else do we try to say? What else do we think of when we think of peacemaking? Is somehow trying to get along, somehow trying to have a compromise without people getting violent, without people expressing any violence towards each other. Perhaps maybe more recently we would think of the truth and reconciliation process that was undertaken for the residential schools in Canada and for the native people who were separated from their families. Or perhaps we think of the restorative justice system that was set up in past apartheid South Africa to try to bring peace among these groups and sections of society that were warring against each other. Nowadays it's increasingly difficult in a technology-enabled ideologically separate, segmented society 
for peace to be anything but what you can have with people who think exactly like you. If you go on forums where they're discussing anything which, has, which is even slightly controversial, there are discussion boards afterwards where you can post your point of view. And usually it will start off relatively, uh, relatively uh, civil. And then what will happen is, is that the discussion will degrade to basically calling you're a fascist, you're a Nazi, you're a this, you're a that, I hate you, I'm going to kill you, etc. and so And usually the people that start, they inflame this discussion so that it goes down this bad trajectory. They're called trolls, aren't they? You've heard, you've heard this, trolls? Yeah. Peacemaking is being the opposite of what a troll is. It's almost as if in a world which is getting hotter and hotter and under greater and greater pressure, God is calling us as peacemakers to be a heat sink for the world. Do you know what a heat sink is? When you have your computer or your smartphone or anything like that, it has a processor. And as it processes, it gets very, very, very hot. So you have a device, usually a metal plate, sometimes with a fan on top of it, that helps to dissipate the heat. That's perhaps a picture of what we're supposed to be doing as peacemakers within the world. Charles Quarles, in his uh, commentary on the Sermon of the Mount, it says, Peacemaking is the work of reconciling two alienated parties or taking two enemies and bringing them into a relationship of unity and harmony and seeking to reconcile estranged individuals. So it goes deeper than just trying to get people to tolerate each other. Now, why is the whole idea of flourishing, makarios, important to peacemaking, and I will admit I struggled over this for quite a, quite a while, this whole concept of flourishing. Why is it important that it is flourishing of the peacemakers? In my job, occasionally, I have to program, and uh, program you're giving the computer some sequential statements of things to follow, and then to produce a result. And one of the uh, basic constructs you have within a programming language is called a branching statement, and a conditional statement. So it's, if you do this, then do this. So if, this, if, the, if the user puts in his name this, then do something else. Okay? We're not supposed to view these Makarios statements as if-then statements. If you are a peacemaker, then you will be called a son of God. What the whole idea of Makarios, I hope, is... What it's trying to, uh, to uh, stimulate in our mind is something which is more observational. Peacemakers flourish and they shall be, called God, uh, shall be called by God and recognized as children of God. It almost asks the quest, it answers the question, what are God's children like? They're flourishing peacemakers. I find that if we phrase it like that, it helps remove the if-then part of it. What are God's children like? They're flourishing peacemakers. And as we view it that way, it tends to remove whether this is applied to great Christians or all Christians. What are God's children like? If you are saved, what are you like? You're like a flourishing peacemaker. And John, John Piper touched on this in his sermon on the Beatitudes. 
highlighting the fact that flourishing is not something which is optional for Christians. And this characteristic of peacemaking, with each beatitude, John Piper says, another nail is driven into a coffin. Inside the coffin lies the corpse of a false understanding of salvation. The false understanding says that a person can be saved without being changed or that a person can inherit eternal life even if his attitudes and actions are like the attitudes and actions of unbelievers. So the flourishing life is the saved life. Now as we come to our passage today, we have there's a couple of bits of context that I would like to highlight which hopefully will give us some additional angles with which we can look at this idea of flourishing and being a peacemaker. The context before Jesus comes to his Sermon on the Mount is really, if you look at the preceding passages, it's both the proclamation by John and the proclamation by Jesus that the kingdom of heaven is near. The proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom is preached by Jesus himself in chapter 4. And I think that this should help guide us in our understanding of what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes we have are descriptions of life under God's kingly dominion. What does it mean to be saved? It means you are under God's kingly dominion. You are part of the kingdom. And in the Beatitudes we have a description of what life looks like under God's kingly dominion. In this already and not yet kingdom. This kingdom which has been announced but the full ramifications of being under God's total and absolute rule hasn't fully come yet. Additionally, context. If we look after the sermon, uh, we look a little bit further on in the Sermon on the Mount, we will see that there is a progression towards being more outwardly looking. Later on, Jesus himself will talk about being the salt and light of the world. The outward looking nature is in Jesus' sermon. Something that benefits all, not just those who are within the covenant community, but something which is outwardly focused, being merciful, being peacemaking. Finally, as an additional note of context, commentators have guided us to show that these beatitudes should be looked at also when they are paired with Jesus when he declares woe on the Pharisees. In Luke's Gospel in chapter 6, The Beatitudes, or the equivalent of the Beatitudes, is very close to the woe woe statements. uh, You'll see, uh, if you look in chapter 6 of of Luke's Gospel, you will see the the Beatitudes there, and then directly afterwards you will see the woe. Woe is declared on the Pharisees. In Matthew's Gospels, it's separated much further, right to the end of the book. However, I think that there's one aspect of the woes which are declared to the Pharisees which would help us also with the idea of flourishing and peacemaking. In Matthew 23:13, Jesus declares woes on the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom, in, uh, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves don't enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. He's actively outward-looking flourishing peace opens the doors of the kingdom so that all get a good view of what's inside even in the midst of this messy everyday life so it's a door opening peace it's a sharing peace the kingdom is with open doors and with greeters that are peaceful 
So this peace is something that needs to be highlighted because it is something which is a characteristically divine activity. Peacemaking itself is actually at the heart of the gospel. We have peace with God through Jesus. In Romans chapter 5 verse 1 it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Ephesians goes on even further. Jesus himself is our peace, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus himself laid his body down for the purpose of peace. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. Jesus' message continued. He came to preach peace to you who are far away and Peace to those who were near as well. Jesus came to reconcile to himself all things and join, so that we are now also called to join in this divine peacemaking push. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, Through him, Jesus purposed to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I hope from these few verses which have been highlighted, which is certainly not exhaustive, we get an idea that the gospel is thoroughly peace-saturated. Making the call to peace, this flourishing peace, a call to join the invasion of the gospel and to spill its benefits beyond the bounds of the kingdom of God. It is an invitation further to peacemake within this messy world, to participate in the divine peacemaking. Scott McKnight, in his Sermon on the Mount, talks about having been receivers of the peace of God, let us be subsequent sharers. The kingdom, which is God's kingly dominion, is displayed in the now by his peacemaking children. God's, imagine that, God's dominion within his church is displayed by us peacemaking. Now when we get to practical implications of this, it doesn't happen at the mountaintop. It doesn't happen in an ivory tower. Peacemaking happens in the real world. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, he had a section which was titled How to Live Under the Influence of the Cross. And he talked about the practicalities that would, be revol- uh, that would be involved with peacemaking. And they were relatively basic. It requires listening to both sides. It requires giving and perhaps sometimes receiving rebukes. He cautions us that peacemaking is not to be confused with appeasement, where we just pretend that everyone is right and we have a false level of peace. In fact, he went on further to say that appeasement is like a cheap, fake imitation version of peace. And he, in calling appeasement cheap, he brings us back to the gospel. That which made peace with God for us was nothing less than the costly price of the Savior's blood. We cannot just pretend that things are okay when real issues have to be dealt with. It will be costly to bring real human flourishing that flows from deep peace with one another. And what will be the cost for us? It will cost us our life. It will cost us our life in time 
and attention, in bearing each other's pain, in sympathizing and in listening to hear both sides of the story. It will take a toll on you as you bear the load of hostility between two groups which are fighting. And it can be incredibly wearying for those of you who have participated in such an activity. It may require humility to ask for forgiveness. It may require courage to rebuke one another. Martin Luther, in his commentary on the Beatitudes, made the statement that these statements, talking about the Beatitudes and the promises, must all be understood as matters matters of faith. And as said concerning things which are not, not seen nor heard, and they have no reference to outside appearances. It will require faith for those of us who are timid to risk becoming the focus of animosity and perhaps people ganging up on us to try to make peace. It will require faith for those of us who idolize pleasing people to correct and rebuke people. It will require faith for those of us who are comfortable living a private Christian life to go and take the flourishing of peace and take it to those who are beyond the bounds of the kingdom. It will require faith for those of us who are naturally more feisty, and there are some of us who are like that, right? To discern the way to meekly and humbly and desiring righteousness and acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy to in that frame of mind to go and call people to peace. I recently asked someone who is undertaking the role of peacemaking within their family what they would say if they sat in a sermon and someone said, you know, the peacemakers are the the flourishing ones. And they kind of sighed. And said, it certainly doesn't feel like I'm flourishing. So even the benefits, the flourishing that happens is something which has to be accepted by faith. It it requires faith to believe and receive any comfort from this statement. Furthermore, peace will demonstrate that we have the Spirit working. The fruit of the Spirit, as we all know, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Peace is there as the fruit of the Spirit, as the Spirit works in our lives, as we live under God's dominion. Peace will start to be evident in our lives. So take heart to those of you who have tried to establish peace. You are actually flourishing. Just like those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourn, those who are meek, you are flourishing. Be encouraged to continue to hunger and thirst after righteousness and be pure and be merciful. Be encouraged. Matthew Henry in his commentary says the making of peace is sometimes a thankless office. It is uh, is the lot of him who parts fights to have blows on both sides. And yet it is a good office and it is something that we should be forward to, something that we should be up to. In going and being a peacemaker, it's likely that you will get accusations from both sides. He continues in his commentary. They, the people who are peacemakers, are working together with Christ, who came into the world to slay all enmities and to proclaim peace on earth. Now, peace is not just niceness and tolerance and saying that everything's cool. One way that nowadays we we try to diffuse 
tension or try to have everyone be agree with it, agreeable with each other as we say, oh, that's interesting. Oh, you sit on your head and you do that? Oh, that's interesting. You guys uh, disagree? Well, that's interesting. What else is peace not? And I'm, uh, what's it? Uh, this is one which is a challenge for me. Just wanting a little bit of peace and quiet. I just want a bit of peace and quiet. As a father of four young children, I can tell you. <laughs> just want a bit of peace and quiet. You know, flourish, peace is flourishing? Yes, definitely, when I can get some peace and quiet. But it's not talking about something which is inherently inwardly focused. Myopic. It's talking about something which is outwardly focused. Something which is a sharing peace. And in fact, paradoxically, the call to be sharers of peace invites you to be willing to give up personal peace in your attempts to expand the boundaries where God's peace is experienced by others. And this is called flourishing, so take heart. Now this flourishing statement, I believe it fits with the other flourishing statements that we've had so far. Flourishing are the peacemakers. If we look at the previous Makarios statements, peacemakers, mindful of our need of God, our spiritual bankruptcy, poor in spirit, meek and mourning of sin. As we come to pull people towards peace, we need to be poor in spirit, not haughty and arrogant. We need to peacemake, particularly when you're peacemaking, from a position of authority. I'll give you an example. You could, uh, even your peacemaking as a parent between children, you peacemake from a position of authority, but you need to do so with a merciful heart, particularly when they're small children. We need to hunger and thirst after righteousness as we peacemake, so that we don't just end up appeasing everyone and pretending that things which, which are actually wrong aren't addressed. We need to be mindful of our spiritual bankruptcy so that we don't peacemake haughtily or with arrogance. We surely will be accused of these things, but we need to make sure that we're not being haughty and going poking our noses where it's not required. Our status before God as justified people in Christ and Christ alone, these garments need to be what's on display as we go to make peace with other people. That we're not coming with, I've got my act together, I'm righteous on my own. We need to come with our poverty of spirit as we go to make peace with one another. And with those outside of the community. Purity of heart. Spurgeon talks that it's very important in his uh, daily meditations. That peacemaking flows from a pure heart. So that we do not condone sin in our attempts to make men peaceable with one another. And in fact, in James it says, but wisdom that comes from heaven is first all pure and then peace-loving. It's the bringing together of purity and peace-loving. It's not a way to gloss over and pretend that there's no irregularities. It's not like, what's it, putting, it's not like putting makeup on to cover up all the blemishes. It's trying to actually deal with the blemishes so you don't have to put on makeup. As we come to our second part, for they will be called, these flourishing peacemakers, they will be called children of God. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, says, peacemaking is such a characteristically divine activity 
that those who engage in it thereby disclose their identity and demonstrate their authenticity as God's children. Now, the benefit that we will have, it's in the future. It shall be. It's a future passive. It will be called by others. And in fact, the others, who the others are, it's not entirely clear. Perhaps it's God doing the calling. Maybe it's others within the covenant community will recognize the resemblance to God. In Matthew Henry's commentary, he says, God will own them as such. He will own them as his children. And herein they will resemble him. He is the God of peace. The Son of God is the Prince of Peace. The Spirit of Adoption is the Spirit of Peace. Here the Trinitarian Peace, and that will be what we resemble. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation flowing from the new creation, as we see in 2 Corinthians 5. And as, if, as we see in Ephesians as well, as dearly beloved children, we need to imitate our fathers and live a life of love, flourishing and sharing our peace with others. There is a phrase where I'm from in England, which it says, he's a chip off the old block. It's a chip, you have to say it with a slightly cockney accent. You know that guy? He's a right chip off the old block, right? What does that mean? It means he's just like his parents, you know, the old block. He's a chip off the old block. He's of the same material. Sorry, yes. <laughs> Another phrase is, uh, oh, the, uh, when you see a child behave, oh, the apple didn't fall for far. The apple didn't fall far from the tree, did it? I don't think that's a Cockney one. I think that's just a general one. But a chip off the old block is definitely. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. When God, when people look at our lives, when God looks at our life, will He say, "Ah, oh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, did it? Look at that peacemaking, flourishing child of mine." Have you noticed as parents how we love to say that those children are ours when they're doing something that pleases us? So, oh, that's my, you know, oh, that's my child, you know. I'm not saying that that thing that they did makes them our child, but we just love to give that accolade to them. That's my child, you know. We're not extra, we don't become extra God's children by peacemaking, but this is something that flows from being a child of God. As I said earlier, this is not an optional for the super holy Christians. This is what flows from people who are under God's kingly dominion, those who are children of God. They are peacemakers. They're flourishing peacemakers. Charles Quarles in his commentary says, peacemaking does not make one a child of God, but peacemaking is an essential expression of divine sonship. It doesn't make you his son or daughter. But peacemakers bear that family resemblance. Scott McKnight in his commentary says, Nothing expresses the father's character, more, father's character more clearly than the ministry of reconciliation. I remember last week when we were talking about the, what happens to the flourishing who are pure in heart, they will see God. I wonder when we do see God, we'll see that face and we'll say, we'll see that perfect and superlative coalescence of all peacemaking perfection seen in his face and we'll think you know I remember seeing that I've seen that in one of my fellow Christian brothers there's definitely a family resemblance there definitely a family resemblance there do our spirits start to discern that this foolishness of God which is talking about the flourishing of those who will put themselves in harm's way and get into a messy and corrupt world as peacemakers, 
is wiser than the wisdom of this world. That we will be flourishing even in our involvement in the messiness of life. As we invite problems and as we head towards heartache and pain. As we open the doors of the kingdom. Think of the reward that it is to be titled and called the children of God. Even with all the hardships that we must face. For we will be followers of Christ following in his footsteps. He poured out his life to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He was Christ coming into the messiness and the horror of real life. And yet in the midst of that, interceding for the transgressors. And as they crucify, praise, Father, forgive. As they, as they crucify him, he is there interceding, doing the work of peacemaking. Think of the birth pains of Christ that Christ endured as he made peace, reconciling us to God. As he moved us from death to life into his flourishing kingdom so that you do not lose heart and become weary. What's the wisdom of this world, however? Don't get engaged. Disengage, disengage. Or how about if someone comes to you in the scripture and say, what about uh, in the scriptures where it says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we were told, so that your daily work will win the respect of outsiders so that you do not need to be dependent on anybody. What about that verse? I don't know fully. However, I would say that it points to when you go about your peacemaking, don't go about peacemaking like a bull in a china shop. Home in on what the other Makarios statements talk about. What are some biblical examples of peacemaking? And I have to admit, I found it very hard to find any. I initially thought of Solomon, but I don't think he actually made peace between the two women that were fighting over the baby. He did solve whose the baby was, but he didn't really make peace. I've got two examples for you, and a New Testament example for you and an Old Testament example. Philemon. Paul writes a plea to Philemon and appeals for Onesimus to be accepted by Philemon. You could argue, ah, you know, he's, he's actually dealing with a slightly um, easier situation because he's coming from a position of authority. And in fact, he says in his letter, I could have demanded this from you, but I won't. And he says, by the way, I won't mention the fact that you owe me your very soul. You know, he says, I won't mention that. But as you read the letter, you don't hear arrogance coming through, but you hear love coming through for Onesimus. He even says, Onesimus, he is my very heart. Accept him, not as a slave, but as a brother. However, Peacemaking does not always go so well. When David was serving King Saul and Saul was increasingly growing more and more jealous of him, Jonathan, uh, David's friend and Saul's son, took up his, his case. And one day Saul was asking why David wasn't at the meal because he was expected to be even though he was kind of uh, jealous of him and wasn't really sure where he stood. Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for your permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me go and see my brothers. 
That is why he has not come to the king's table. And then Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, and this is like Lord of the Rings type language, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't you know that you have, don't you know that, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse and to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. This is like Lord Denethor, you know. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asks his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. So, peacemaking doesn't always go as planned. I'm glad that nowadays parents don't have uh, spears lying around the houses. But it is an invitation into the messiness of real uh, real life. Not slamming the door of the kingdom shut because of the conflict that we may experience outside, but opening the doors of the kingdom. A common critique that is made for people in my department at work is that you don't live in the real world. You guys in advanced design, you're just always designing paper airplanes. They never actually happen, you know. You don't have to deal with the real issues when we have suppliers and the engine manufacturer doesn't want to do what we want them to do. You guys, you just resize the wing, you resize the engine. It's easy for you. You live in an ivory tower. The invitation to peacemaking is not about doing it in this theoretical frame set, about doing it while we're all quiet in the pews. It's about doing it in the real life. I remember my mom once when she was dealing with some difficult peacemaking. She said... Life is messy, messy, messy. Let me give you an example. I'll take the words of Jesus later on in this same sermon. Therefore, if you have an offering, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in the front of the altar. Go and be reconciled to them. Then come and bring your gift. Wow. That's difficult, isn't it? Family conflicts aren't easy, are they? Church conflicts, very difficult. These are really messy situations. Helping in the midst of broken relationships, getting involved in marriages that are broken, broken relationships between parents and children, siblings, it causes a lot of heartache, doesn't it? You may be accused from both sides. You don't want peace at all. You're just taking sides. You're sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. How about another example? Perhaps a uniquely Montreal call for peacemaking. Perhaps there's a place for a ministry of peacemaking between Anglophones and Francophones, isn't there? God just doesn't invite us to peacemaking in the theoretical. He's calling us to peacemaking in the realities of messy daily life. Additionally, we know that we're going to face some hardships for the verses that follow this give us indications of that. Flourishing are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Peacemaking requires faith, isn't it? Because we step into a realm where we can't control the outcomes. And yet it is the call for what we have been called to. No results envisioned, and in fact, hardship envisioned. And yet, we get, some, uh, get some also some additional guidance of the hint of our peacemaking, the, the, the characteristics of it. It is supposed to have gospel influence and the aroma of Christ. We'll get to these verses next week, but the, the persecution that you will face is not persecution because you're being a jerk. And it's not persecution because it's persecution because of self uh, because we are being righteous, not because you're being self righteous. But those will be covered in the covering weeks. So we've been li- we're invited to live in the midst of conflict. And we know it is somewhat inevitable. Because even later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I came to bring peace. Our, our association with Christ himself will be a cause of friction and yet we are called to strive and expend energy on peacemaking. Strive towards peace. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans chapter 12. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Make every effort. Again, Romans. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Talk about appeasement versus real peacemaking. Full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. 2 Corinthians 13. Ephesians. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Hebrews, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Purity of heart, peaceable. Titus 3, slander no one, be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle to everyone. We were called to peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since you are members of one body, you were called to peace. So as we close today, Perhaps you are asking, perhaps you're someone who is not part of the kingdom of God. You are not under God's kingly dominion. You haven't accepted Christ as your savior. And you're wondering, who is this Jesus who has been talking? Who makes the claim that ultimate peace between God and man has been made. And who sets up a kingdom where peacemaking is so highly valued that those who do so are characteristically called children of God. I want to know more. Maybe those of us who are Christians, we need to think about where God wants to turn our peacemaking outwardly, more outwardly focused. Is there someone that I need to make peace with? Perhaps that person is in this room. Are there people within this church that God is laying on our heart that we need to be facilitating peacemaking between Perhaps within your families, there are broken marriages, broken relationships, heartache and pain that God wants you, as uncomfortable as it is, to start to peacemake within that situation. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness on the way that you've tried to arrogantly and haughtily make peace. Perhaps 
You just need to ask God to give you strength to be brave enough to step out in faith, out of your little private Christianity, to have a Christianity which is more outwardly focused that wants to share the peace that you have had with God. And finally, perhaps we need to pray that God would enable us to treasure more deeply that we would bear the resemblance of the Father in peacemaking and that to be called the sons of God would be our ultimate joy and that our hearts would be transformed, that our incomplete vision of what the saved life entails would be reformed and that we would have a much more flourishing view of salvation. So towards that end, let's pray together. Maybe we'll just take a moment to sit quietly to ask God, God, what way do you want me to take what I've heard this morning and apply it, Lord? Whether it's peacemaking with others, whether it's in the attitudes of our heart, Let's just sit quietly before the Lord for a moment. Lord, we are grateful as we come before you that as you saw the messiness of this sinful world, You had a sharing heart of peace, Lord, coming to slay all enmities and to set up your kingdom, Lord, a place where peacefulness flourishes. We pray, Lord, that as we listen to your spirit, you would teach us, Lord, what it is to be sons of God, that we would be flourishing peacemakers. We pray that you would do this for your praise and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Therefore, as a covenant community who has received peace with God through Christ, now let us go and share the peace with those beyond these walls in the messy world that we live in, to the praise of Christ our Saviour. Amen.